please stand for the reading of God's word. This morning we will be reading from 1 Peter 2, 1 through 10. It is found on page 114 in your pew Bible. First, Therefore, rid yourself of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so though by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in the scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone is the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who call you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word. Hope you'll keep your Bibles open to 1 Peter as we pray together this morning. God, as we come into your presence today, as we gather alongside our friends, sing your praises and open your word today, we know that it is only by your grace that we do so. That it is only by your grace, the mercy that you show to us, that we can call you our Father. And we confess that we often neglect that privilege and the magnitude of the grace shown to us. So we desire this morning, Lord, that you would give us a true and deep longing for you and for your word. We know that your word, when it is proclaimed, does not come back empty. And I ask this morning that during the next few minutes that we spend together looking at this passage from 1 Peter, that you would do your work, that you would restore us, that you would give us a desire for more and more of you and hearts that are full of rejoicing for the love and mercy that you have shown to us. God, we ask this this morning in the name of your Son. Amen. In the early centuries of Christianity, when the church was very first getting started, growing, beginning to flourish in the Roman Empire, Christians often faced opposition. And as we, as we have discussed already in our study of the book of 1 Peter, that even in its earliest days, the earliest days of the church, Peter was already counseling churches through their experiences of societal pressure that would shortly break forth into violent persecution. And nowhere was that persecution more violent and more oppressive than in the capital city of the Roman Empire, Rome itself. 
And for the first couple of centuries, Christians in Rome experienced intermittent waves of persecution under the reigns of some of Rome's emperors. Christians faced imprisonment and torture and sometimes death for declaring their faith in Christ. And even though we might think that those circumstances would have stifled or perhaps even stopped the growth of the church entirely, the opposite actually took place. The Christian movement grew and spread throughout the Roman Empire at a remarkable pace. Even as waves of persecution and violence swept through the church, it continued to grow and even to thrive. Because clearly the Holy Spirit was at work to lead people to faith in spite of the risks that faith would bring. And the world today wonders, how was God at work to accomplish this mission? Why were people so willing to risk everything for this? It's a question that runs through our minds the more that we examine various periods of church history. From almost any century in the church's history, we wonder this, but especially at the very beginning. During these waves of intense persecution, Christians were literally forced underground. Literally, in ancient Rome, there was a tradition that had developed of excavating cavernous spaces outside of the city for the purpose of burying the dead. The Romans didn't like the idea of death. They wanted it out of sight and out of mind. And so a system of catacombs was designed and built for that purpose so that their dead could be buried out of sight and out of mind. And in those catacombs, in the darkness and surrounded by death, Christians found a safe place to meet for worship and fellowship. Risking their lives, they established literal underground churches, and we admire their courage because in 21st century America, our tendency is to stay home on Sunday mornings if we have indigestion, let alone if our lives are at risk. We can admit, I think, that there are Sunday mornings when we're just not really feeling it. When we get the Westgate Weekly in our email inbox and we see that Travis is preaching and we think maybe this is a good Sunday to go to the beach, <laughs> it's not hard to look at these believers in ancient Rome and be impressed with their tenacity. And the same is true for Christians in various parts of the world today where gathering for worship can pose a safety risk. These Roman, uh, these Roman believers literally laid it all in the line and took up meeting in darkness and underground graveyards in order to pursue fellowship with the church. And in the passage we're looking at this morning, we can get a glimpse of why they did and why we should too. Because God is at work to establish a community brought together by His grace and united for His glory. Like the passage that we looked at last week, if you were with us, Peter opens chapter 2 with a reference to what he's already said. And in chapter 2, verse 1, the first word is so, or therefore, depending on the translation that you're reading. He's making sure that his readers remember the end of chapter 1. Now, I preached on that passage last week, and I can barely remember what I said, so I don't think it would be fair for me to assume that you'll remember what I said. But chapter 1 ended with a strong, emphatic command for Christians to love one another earnestly, to love one another with perseverance and with patience and willingness to sacrifice for one another because that kind of love is part of God's nature. And just as we are called to be holy as God is holy, 
Like Peter said in chapter 1, verse 15, we ought to love because God is love. Love should be the defining characteristic of the relationships that exist between God's people because they have been redeemed by a, a loving God. It is the command that will establish the groundwork for something that God is building. And our obedience to that command will bring God's people together for God's purposes. So, Peter says, because of this command to love, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and evil and all slander. It's a list of sin, like many others in Scripture, that God's people are to resist. At a few points in Scripture, Paul, make lists, Paul makes lists like this, like in Galatians 5, when he admonishes believers to avoid sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. It's an exhaustive list. But what Peter catalogs here is distinctive from other lists of sinful behavior that Scripture provides to us, because what he points out here, or what he lists for us here, aren't the same as the things that Paul listed in Galatians 5. Peter is focusing instead on the things that might compromise the love which, we, which ought to characterize the community of God's people. Paul's list from Galatians 5 is a broad and sweeping overview of the things that we are tempted by, that all people are tempted by in, the, in our nature, which is contrary to God's nature and God's design. It is a part of Paul's explanation to us that God is at work to make us new and by His Spirit to give us strength to flee from sin. But what we see here in 1 Peter is more focused on how God is at work to continually make the church new, to strengthen it and the unity that ought to define it. Malice, which is often translated as evil or wickedness elsewhere in the New Testament, is kind of a catch-all term for anything that is contrary to God's nature. But deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander are all sins that we commit within the context of a relationship with one another. It takes two people to slander, one to do the slandering and one to be slandered about. They are sins that put others down for our own gain. And in light of chapter 1's command, this emphatic command to love, and our understanding of love in light of Christ's example to us, it's easy to see why slander and malice and envy and hypocrisy and deceit are condemned in the opening lines of chapter 2, because they are the opposite of how Christ has acted toward each of us. They represent the opposite of God's character, and that which ought to define the character of his community of faith. And reading this list, we assume, as we often do, that we have some work to do. We roll up our sleeves and we take upon ourselves the responsibility to make ourselves into the people that God calls us to be. But as we saw in chapter 1, that is a work and a responsibility reserved for and possible only to God himself. Though we might wake up and think to ourselves, today, I will not have malice in my heart, or deceit in my words, or hypocrisy, or envy, or slander in my character. We will soon realize how impossible it is to rid ourselves of these things that come most naturally to us. None of us had to be taught 
to be deceitful or envious. It comes to us naturally. We never had to be taught how to be a hypocrite because we are born with a knack for it. And even if we think we are strong enough to handle becoming people of godly character, Peter reminds us that none of us is because we are like newborn infants, he says in verse 2. Helpless and dependent. Those of you who have spent lots of times with babies already know that. And admittedly, I don't know much about babies. But one thing I do know, one, the one thing I do know maybe about babies is that it's probably not good to feed a newborn baby broccoli or a Big Mac. Because babies are dependent on their parents for what they actually can eat and what is actually good for them. And that is an illustration that Peter uses to drive home a simple point. That all Christians, every one of us, is like a newborn baby, dependent on God to give us what we need to grow up. And realizing that, all that is left to us is to look to the one who can raise us up into salvation by giving us the nourishment that we need. It's a point that we explored in the sermon last week, but here Peter expands on that essential truth with the opening words of chapter 2. We might summarize his point by saying that treasuring Christ develops Christ-like community. It's an idea that Peter really underscores with his choice of words in the following verse. So, Peter says, because you've been called into a community characterized by love, setting aside the habits that might compromise the integrity of that community, he says, long for spiritual milk. Grammatically speaking, long for is the only command in this morning's passage. And just as newborn infants long for milk, Christians are longing for something. Elsewhere in Scripture, Paul uses a metaphor involving babies and milk to refer to the growth of Christians over time, essentially that Christians really ought to strive to grow into maturity, no longer living on a diet of milk or the basics of our faith, but to grow into an appetite for meat, the weighty doctrines and theology that God invites us to explore. But that is not the way that Peter is using this metaphor. He is referring only to dependence. And even though we might think of ourselves as capable of ridding ourselves of malice and deceit and the rest, in reality, Peter reminds us that we are like babies, that we are dependent on God who is raising us up into godly character. And he does that as we long for the abiding word mentioned at the end of chapter 1. And if I'm honest with you this morning, I wrestle with that. Because how can we obey a command to long for something? How can we orient our heart towards something that it doesn't already desire? Some of you know that I hate cheese. And people always ask me, like, how is it? How do you not like cheese? And I'm like, well, have you tasted it? Because it seems pretty obvious to me. And even though my life would have been a lot easier if I loved cheese, and even though I have tried during my lifetime to develop an, uh, an appetite for it, to try to develop a, a love for cheese, I just don't. And sometimes we read the only command in this passage, the only imperative in this, pa in this passage, an instruction to long for God's Word, and it can feel like someone telling me to just like cheese when I'm just not into it. 
How will we obey this instruction? How can we direct our hearts to long for the spiritual milk of God's Word? Peter reminds us of the obvious answer. All of God's people will long for His Word if, indeed, you have tasted that the Lord is good. If we see Scripture as God's Word, as the nourishment that will raise us up into salvation, and if we see it as God Himself describes it, as life-giving and abiding, we will love it and long for it without trying to do it. Peter's quoting here from Psalm 34, 8. In that psalm, the writer begs his readers to taste and see that the Lord is good because He is the defender of His people, their deliverer and the one who raises them up out of trouble. It's a plea to experience God's love in such a way that it results in organic and heartfelt worship. Three years ago, when Jessica and I first moved here to New England, my parents came to visit shortly afterward, and we went to New Hampshire for a couple days. And while we were there, we visited a sugar house where maple syrup is made. I had never tasted maple syrup in my whole life, like real maple syrup. I had only had the syrup that's made from, like, corn syrup, right, that costs like a fraction of what the real stuff costs. And while we were at this sugar house, they offered us samples of their syrup. And as soon as that sweet, sweet nectar touched my lips, I thought to myself, this was a mistake. Because from that day on, I knew I would never be satisfied with, with Mrs. Butterworth's ever again. <laughs> I would always see it as a sad, sad attempt at replicating the real thing. And with every taste of the imitator, I would inwardly recoil at the sheer arrogance that anyone would attempt to duplicate this liquid gold that I tasted that day, because my eyes were opened to what the real thing tasted like and to what I had been satisfied with before. And even though Peter probably never tasted maple syrup, the point he's making in this passage this morning is the same. Our experience of God's love for us and of the salvation that He offers us of the holiness that he calls us to, and of the access that we have to his presence in prayer, and of the hope that we have in the light of the gospel, we discover in reading God's word that our hearts have changed and that God has changed what we long for. We taste that God is good. We look at what we contented ourselves with before as the sad imitations of the thing we didn't even know we were missing until now. And it's that, that savoring of God's goodness that raises us up into salvation and makes us the people that God has called us to be. When we long for God and for His Word, and we satisfy ourselves with nothing less, we become people of godly character. And it's easy to see the impact that that would have on our relationships with one another. In treasuring Christ and longing for the gospel of his love received in his word, the sin that tempted us before seems less able to satisfy. The habits that we had for putting others down to make ourselves seem higher up seem less necessary because we know that in Christ we are being raised up into salvation. Treasuring Christ develops Christ-like character in God's people. So, treasuring Christ develops Christ-like character in God's community. It's a point that is often overlooked in Western Christianity where individualism is the rule of the day. 
We often think of a relationship with God on individual terms, considering how he's at work to make each of us as individuals into godly people. But Peter is helping us in this passage to remember that God is at work to build something bigger than any one of us. And in this passage, he cultivates a longing for his word, a treasuring of Christ that begins to develop in a Christ-like community. And he is preparing the ground for what he will build above it. On my very first date with Jessica, she's not here this morning. She's downstairs with the babies. Uh, maybe she can hear me. I didn't think about that. But I'm going to tell this story as if she can't hear me. On my very first date with Jessica, during the awkward small talk that is part of all first dates, when I'm sure I was rambling on and on and on about something, Jessica mentioned to me that she and her family had built the house that they lived in. And I interpreted that to mean what all of us would interpret that to mean, which is to say that she and her family hired a builder and said, you know, this is how many bedrooms we want, and this is how many bathrooms we want, and then a professional built their house. Um, but that is not what she meant, even though I think that's what most people would interpret that to mean. And she told me that instead, she and her sister and her parents had literally built their house themselves. I had no category for this, and I straight up told her I did not believe her. For some reason that is unexplained by psychology or science or philosophy, Jessica agreed to a second date with me. And when that day came, she arrived with photos of herself and her family raising the walls and shingling the roof. Okay, so fine. She helped build her house. And Jessica is like most people in the ancient world who mostly built their houses themselves. And reading Peter's letter, they had a well-informed understanding of a metaphor that he will go on to use in verses 4 and 8 about this thing that God is building. Peter is using this metaphor to put the gospel on display. Jesus is the living stone, the one who was rejected by mankind, who was mocked and beaten and tortured and killed, yet was treasured by his Father. He is like a stone cast aside by builders as unfit for use and unworthy of attention. In their eyes, he is flawed, incapable, and unable to do the work of a stone in a building. It is the way that many people saw Jesus during his lifetime. They could see that he was powerful. They saw that he was able to do miracles and heal people. But they did not think that he was able to save them from what they hated most. For Jewish people in the ancient world, national identity was a top priority. These people had a rich history of God's provision and examples from their history of God's deliverance from invading armies. But in the decades leading up to the birth of Christ, the Roman Empire came to town and set up shop in Jerusalem. And the people there were powerless to stop it, even though they tried and they rebelled. All their efforts were stamped out with ease. And as these people read their Old Testaments and they remembered God's promises to deliver his people, to rescue them from oppression, and to dwell with them in glory, they naturally read those promises in light of their current plight and the Roman government that was oppressing them. And they wanted a rescuer who would raise up an army and liberate them from this oppression. When Jesus arrives, he does not come leading an army. He comes as a newborn infant, helpless and dependent. He is not what they were looking for. As he grew up, he did not display a knack for ruthless military strategy, but for kindness and holiness. 
because he is not what they were looking for. So he is cast aside as one who claimed to be the Messiah, but clearly could not be, because he had no power to save or to rescue his people, they thought. And on the cross, as he drew shallow, ragged breaths, people mocked him and his claims of divinity, telling him that if he really were God's son, he would save himself from this indignity. But he did not, and he was not who they were looking for. So this man, seen as a stone unfit for use in a building, was cast aside by mankind. But in the sight of God, he was chosen and precious, according to verse 4 of our passage this morning. What mankind saw as worthless, the Father recognized as precious. And Jesus became the living stone, the man who conquered death and brings his people along with him. Those who follow him are like newborn infants, as he was, helpless and dependent, yet chosen and precious in the sight of God, made alive together with Christ. And as we come to him, Peter says, you yourselves are like living stones built up as a spiritual house. It's clear from the language used throughout this section of chapter 2 that Peter is calling to mind a very specific part of Jewish culture and history. And even though he never uses the term specifically, it's very clear what he's getting at. It's like if I spoke to you about a man who preaches the gospel, who brings all doctrine back to a core understanding of the Trinity, who looms large in every room that he enters, and who has an unfortunate affinity for the New York Yankees. You wouldn't need me to tell you that I'm talking about Bruce Daggett. If you know him for longer than five minutes then these aspects of his character, some of which are admirable and some of which have to do with the New York Yankees, are obvious to you. You'd know I'm referring to Bruce without me even needing to say his name. And Peter is doing that here. God is at work to build a spiritual house, a place where God's people come or draw near to him, where they are established as a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. He doesn't have to use the word temple itself to help us understand what he's getting at. God is building a temple from this rejected stone who has been made the living stone and established as the cornerstone into which all believers are incorporated. For those in the ancient Near East, neither the temple itself nor this idea of a cornerstone required any special explanation. But for us, they can be pretty foreign concept, far removed from our contemporary experience. But it's impossible for me to overstate to you the significance of the temple in ancient Israel. It was the epicenter of religious practice for God's people because it was the literal, physical meeting place of God with mankind. It was the place where sacrifices of atonement would be carried out and where the sin of God's people would be mediated And on top of all of that, it was a symbol of national pride and identity, which we've already noted was a priority for these people. It embodied the call of God to his people as a special possession from among all the nations of the earth. For ancient Israel, it was a reminder of God's favor. And it's impossible for me to overstate its significance to them. And that helps us understand why Jesus was uh, reacted to in the way that he was when he told people that he would destroy the temple and in three days raise it up. 
The people that heard Jesus say that were confused. They didn't understand, and they responded to them, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. They remembered the anticipation that built in them as they watched it come together, and they remembered the process and the length of time it took to come together. And they scoffed at Jesus for saying that he would destroy it and rebuild it in three days. But John, who recorded this scene for us in chapter 2 of his gospel, explains that Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. Because Jesus came to establish a new temple, to build it up brick by brick, and to serve as the metaphorical cornerstone for this new structure. Another idea that's kind of distant from our contemporary experience. A cornerstone is a critical part of every building, and its placement was crucial. It was the first piece laid as the building project began. An improperly set cornerstone would crack under the weight of the walls built on top of it, and that meant that it had to be an a exceptionally strong piece of stone. It had to be set squarely so that the building would be square and stable. Builder, builders were meticulous about cornerstones because a small mistake or oversight, oversight in its installation would spell disaster later on. So it was worth the time to get it right. And it's easy to see why the idea of a cornerstone served as a perfect metaphor for Christ, one which Paul also uses. With the same Old Testament passages in mind, Paul makes a very similar point in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says, so then you are no longer strangers and the aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple for the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In Christ, we are being built together into a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. And both Peter and Paul refer to Christ himself as the cornerstone of that structure, which itself was not a new idea. Three times in our passage from 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter quotes lines from the Old Testament which referred to the promised Messiah as a cornerstone. In Zion, which is an Old, Old Testament way of referring to God's city, God is laying a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. It is the gospel hope that Peter has written about already in this letter, that in Christ there is salvation, freedom from condemnation, and that faith in this gospel brings rescue. However, some will certainly stumble over Christ, Peter points out. They will never see him as chosen and precious, but as a stone of offense. They will not understand the promise of the hope that he offers to them. They will not treasure him as a savior. And the cultural gap between those who long for the spiritual milk of God's word and those those who are being built up into his dwelling and those who see him as an offense will widen and widen. Just as it was for Peter's first readers, those who treasure Christ begin to see all things in a new way, to live life in an entirely new way. And a cultural tension began to develop between them and their neighbors who did not look to Christ in hope. It is a tension I think many of us understand. Many of you go to work in offices where you don't know a single other person who attends a church or schools where it's hard to find a friend who has faith in the God of the Bible. 
We feel the cultural tension mounting as we cling to scriptural teaching on controversial issues. And we wonder, how will we minister to, pe- to, to people who see Christ as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, who stumble, according to verse 8, because they disobey the word as they were destined to do? It is the natural disposition of all people toward God to long for our way and not God's word to see his instruction and his son as an offense. And as people who have been ransomed from the feudal ways that we inherited from our forefathers, the the natural disposition that we inherited from our forefathers, we wonder how we will reach and how we will love these people and how we will persevere when our effort is rejected and our obedience to Christ itself is an offense. It's a question that Peter has been building up toward answering in this passage. For the sake of our good and God's glory, he is uniting his church for the proclamation of the gospel. As people who draw nearer to Christ, Peter says in verse 4, they are made like living stones themselves, being built up into the spiritual house and a holy priesthood. We become the new temple, and all the significance that ancient Israel put on the temple building itself is assigned to the people who have been redeemed by the God who indwells this new temple. Whereas before the meeting place of God with mankind was in a building, now it is you and me. Where the ancient temple stood as the dwelling of God with mankind, in Christ, the dwelling of God is in his people. Rather than offering sacrifices of atonement in a temple building, we are a holy priesthood who offers spiritual sacrifices, according to verse 5. They are no longer offerings of harvest, nor the blood of bulls and goats, but of worship, of hearts redeemed by the sacrifice of the Son, whose blood has atoned once and for all time. They are living sacrifices, as Paul puts it. Lives offered that have been renewed and restored and are being sanctified by a holy God. And where the ancient temple stood as a symbol of national pride, a new temple stands, made up of people of all tongues and all nations who humbly cry out to God together for mercy and receive it in Christ. They are no longer a people united by ethnicity or tradition or culture, They are a people united as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for God's own possession. And what used to define us no longer defines us. These things that used to be at the very core of who we are as people has been replaced because in Christ, we are brought together as a people set apart for his purpose, to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, as Peter puts it. And while we certainly should proclaim God's glory to one another and to God himself, as we do when we gather for corporate worship here at Westgate on Sunday mornings, the context of 1 Peter makes it very clear to us that there is another audience for our declaration of God's excellencies. A people who look to Christ not as a Savior, but merely as a good teacher who look to Christianity as a movement characterized not by gospel hope, but by an archaic and outdated system of rules. 
And just as God called the people of ancient Israel a people for his own possession, for the sake of the nations, and, for so, and so that the world would know his love, he calls his people today, built into a new temple, to do the work of the, of the old temple, to do the same work by his power and for his purpose. We would be naive to ignore the widening gap between the prevalent culture in our country and the biblical worldview that we cling to. And it would be easy for us to feel overwhelmed at the work that lies ahead. But as we've seen in 1 Peter already, God is the one who is at work and with the power to save, not us. He is the one with the power to redeem and to restore, not us. And by his grace, he calls us into that redeeming work. And he does so by establishing a community of faith characterized by Christ-like love built up to carry out the work of the temple for the sake of declaring his glory to the nations. None of us is supposed to go it alone. Together, we are united by Christ. And looking to him as the united, uniting, strengthening cornerstone, we carry out the work that he has appointed for us. We look back at the believers who gathered for worship surrounded by darkness in underground cemeteries, and we are impressed by their courage and their perseverance. But the book of 1 Peter helps us to see that fellowship is something we've been called to because it is life-giving. It is strengthening, and that it is that which brings light to dark places. We have been made alive together with Christ, brought into his marvelous light and given a lasting hope. And we have more in common with those ancient Roman believers than we realize, because together with them, we are the dwelling place of God for the sake of the world who sees the gospel as a stumbling block. And as we put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, envy, and slander, let us depend on Christ as the one who saves, not just us, not just me individually, but us together. Let us put our hope in the restoration of our world in Christ, the one who unites his people to proclaim his glory.